My guest today is Dr. James Tabry, who is professor at the University of Utah with appointments in the Department of Philosophy and the Department of Internal Medicine. His research areas are history and philosophy of science as well as bioethics. Welcome, Jim. Hi, Gail. Good to be with you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So, uh, as I briefly mentioned, Jim, I was at a pharmaceutical company in the 90s, and many of the things that you talk about here are <laughs> uh, dear and near to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's very interesting. Unfortunately, we don't have too many things to disagree about. Um, so there won't be any major debates on this uh, on this uh, episode. <laughs> um, but uh, so I want to set the context for the general public. So we're going to talk about healthcare uh, broadly. And healthcare spending in the U.S. growing at 3% a year in 2023. We're going to hit about $4.4 trillion, the last number that I saw. Um, and that's a big pie, $4.4 trillion per year. Uh, 10% of that is pharmaceuticals. Um, and I still have some pharmaceutical friends. I talked to PharmaXX. Uh, they say it's only 10%. How about the other 90%? You go look at the other 90%, which is sort of a rational argument. Um, there is uh, 30% in hospital-based uh, care, so about you know three times as much as pharmaceuticals. But these are very different businesses. So we cannot do a statistical you know, sort of um, analysis of this. So what I would do as a sort of an economics guy I would say, you know, let's look at the returns, returns of the 10%, the returns of 30%. If the pharmaceutical execs believe, you know, they're, you know, serving the, the universe, uh, they can just take the PE from the hospitals and just swap it. Obviously, your option value will decline quite dramatically. So hospitals are, you know, making very little money. And, uh, and the pharmaceutical companies are making a lot of money, as we all know. So, it is not a statistical question, it's an economic question. So, so that is the cost side of it. Uh, the revenue side of it, um, I also want to look at, you know, quality adjusted lifespan. And again, I hear different views on this. So, um, you know, if I, if I talk to um, execs and, you know, people who make a lot of money, uh, they say, you know, the quality adjusted lifespan has been increasing. It, it is a miracle of technology. But when I look at aggregate data, um, you know, with people of lower income and, and different social status, different classes, even different skin color, as you mentioned in your, in your book, um, it's a different story. Uh, quality adjusted lifespan has been stagnant in the US for 25 years. And so we have a cost that's going up at 3% per year, we have revenue as proxied by quality adjusted lifespan stagnant. That's a prescription for disaster <laughs> in, in, in any business, right? So so I want I want you to first react to that. And then I want to go to your to your book, which is a fascinating book, well written and well articulated. So yeah. So. Th- thanks, Gil. Um yeah, I think you you you've really put your finger on what is um widely agreed to be the problem and then um, sort of the the disagreement emerges in terms of what we what we're supposed to do about it. Another way to make the point that you were making there was your focus was largely on the dynamic that's been playing out in the United States, but there's been lots of analyses that look at sort of the you know what do you get out of what do you put in across nations, 
And yeah. that's where I think you really see the United States lagging. Um, we, as, as, a, as a high-income nation, put far more into healthcare than any other nation. And yet on all sorts of just basic health outcomes, whether you're talking about, you know, kind of life expectancy, infant mortality, maternal mortality, um, all sorts of chronic disease prevalencies, um, uh, the United States performs at the bottom of the pack of these high income nations. And, and, and so that really reveals the nature of what's out of whack here. We're just throwing enormous amounts of money at these issues, at these problems. And typically the way the system is set up is to sort of wait until people get very sick and then kind of throw everything at them. Um, but at that point it's extremely expensive and, and the return on investment is, is typically quite small. Um, whereas many of the other nations, right, have far invested far more into all sorts of social security service infrastructure, right? Sort of surrounding people with access to the um, health and living and employment and economic resources that they need to live safe, healthy lives, um, which it turns out, uh, uh, lets you live longer lives. It tends to particularly be helpful pe for people at the lower levels of the socioeconomic um, uh, uh, community. And, and it has a, a, an overall impact on those outcome measures that everyone agrees upon are real indicators of the, of the health of, of a population. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's a good point, Jim. So I, I was sort of focused on the US. So 330 million people that we have here, there's 7.7 .7 billion people out there. Um, who are not Americans, yeah. and uh, they spend about 4.5 trillion too. Um, and so, you know, we spend 4.5 trillion for <laughs> 330 million. The other 7.7 .7 billion people spend 4.5 trillion, and health outcomes are not substantially different. It mm -hmm. looks like uh, mm -hmm. from a from from a statistical analysis, right? Yeah, there's some things in the United States where you you know where all that sort of again because a lot of the investment is in sort of expensive interventions late at life so it turns out if you're sort of very sick you know you kind of um uh, uh you know complicated cancers complicated heart disease organ transplants those kind of things the united states tends to uh, do better than its peers but when you step away from those that kind of extreme situation at the end of life and then just look at health more generally, right, kind of, again, the, the just, the, you know, features like life expectancy, um, uh, maternal and infant mortality, these are the kind of the, 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 me the measures that most um, health professionals look to to give you some sort of sense of just how healthy is this population. Um, yeah. The United States is not doing well on those indicators. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's sad. I mean, um, you know, we have developed a lot of technologies. Um, we are ahead in, you know, a lot of computer science, software-related areas, and many other areas. But in healthcare, in spite of our claims of great advancement, we are lagging, um, mm -hmm, which, is a, which is sort of a puzzling thing. So, so, I, so you wrote this book, Tyranny of the Gene, um, it's a fascinating book. Uh, you say here, personalized medicine <laughs> and its threat to public health, uh, which is uh, which is quite interesting. So, so do you want to put the context uh, for the book? And you know, I, I know that you talk about your dad in the in the first chapter, which is sort of prototypical situation 
for a lot of people, right? I mean, uh, when something bad happens, we, we try to stop it, but oftentimes we can't, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, my first exposure to this world in hindsight, I, I didn't really appreciate it at the time because um, I was actually working on a different book, and so it was only when I kind of turned to this topic several years later and then looked back on my dad's experience that things started to click. But my initial experience with it was with my father. Um, in 2011, he was uh, diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. So this is lung cancer that had already metastasized; it was all through his body. Um, uh, lung cancer is um, uh, by far the most uh, prevalent and among the most dangerous cancers in the in the United States and in the world, in part because um, it's oftentimes not detected until it's already metastasized, um, right? You, you, um, you often don't feel pain. Lungs don't have pain receptors, so you don't sort of have the pain that you might feel in a different part of the body. There's, you know, we don't typically do things like colonoscopies or, or uh, mammograms for the lungs, um, although there's sort of talk about changing that. And so it turns out, you know, while it was just sort of like a, um, uh, what seemed like a, a freakish nightmare for our family, I subsequently learned this every two minutes across the, uh, the United States, somebody is diagnosed with lung cancer. And, and yeah. um, because it's metastatic, obviously your treatment options are fairly limited, right? It's not a matter of just sort of cutting out the bit that you found and then hoping the problem goes away. Um, so there was a definite sort of period of um, just despair and hopelessness um, when we, you know, when I kind of doom scrolled for what was the life expectancy of somebody with stage four lung cancer at the time, it said about eight months. So this was just absolutely um, uh, horrific. But we soon learned that they had done a biopsy of the cancer and there was a marker, a molecular marker on the tumor that suggested that my dad was a good match for a drug called Tarceva. Um, yeah. And we learned that this was, um, you know, a, a drug that initially was just approved for anybody with, with lung cancer, but then it was sort of subsequent research suggested that it was only certain patients that had this molecular marker that my dad had that made him a good match. Um, and he was put on the drug and I can still, you know, recall getting the phone call from my mom a couple of weeks later when she said that the, the tumors were shrinking. Um, and so it seemed like, you know, this was um, just absolutely amazing. Um, you know, fast forward um, uh, about 12 months later, they did another scan and um, the cancer had overcome, it sort of continued to evolve and, and become resistant to the Tarceva. And then um, I don't know how much your your viewers and listeners know about cancer, but oftentimes when it sort of goes in, you know, is sort of beaten down by a drug and then comes back, it often comes back back with a vengeance. And that was the case in my dad. It came back and um, he died about a month later. So the Tarceva, you know, he, life expectancy was about eight months. He lived about 13 months. You know, I, you're a statistics guy. You know, you can't sort of say Tarceva gave him five months. But I do think there's every reason to think that he lived longer because of that drug. Um, on the other hand, it was extremely expensive. Uh, my, my parents had good health insurance, so they didn't absorb all this. But but other people don't, and they can go broke quickly. Uh, it was it was thousands of dollars a month. Um, uh, research that I did showed that, it, you know, not everybody gets access to the kind of genetic testing and then drugs that something like Tarceva does. Um, offers. And so there's an equitability and access issue. Um, and at the end of the day, again, you know, it, all it did was sort of prolonged his terminal 
disease by a couple months. You know, I mean, yeah. I would have much rather had my dad not get lung cancer than have a very expensive drug that keeps him alive for a short period of, of, of time after he has lung cancer. And and I opened the book with that story because I think it does capture sort of the dynamic um of the of the sort of question about what do we do about this situation that we're in that you talked about at the beginning where you know we're we're getting more and more of these extremely expensive of treatments that are available for people at the end of their lives and yet um they're not getting to the root of the problem which is this you know propensity for people to get sick in the first place yeah so so let me let me ask you a loaded question um are pharmaceuticals fundamentally a symptomatic treatment option. How do you mean by a symptomatic treatment option? Say so, a little more. So do you know pharmaceutical products that cures a disease? Mm -hmm. Or I mean, we know a lot of pharmaceutical products that actually alleviates symptoms. Like in, yeah. in your dad's case, it extended life by a few months. Um, so, you know, it did something for uh, a few weeks and then it returned again. So it's not a cure, it's just extension. Mm -hmm. In many cases, uh, it appears to me it's more symptomatic treatment, right? So this is mm -hmm. a this is a sort of a fundamental life sciences question. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know that we have advanced technologies, we have done a lot of things, but fundamentally, are we just treating symptoms or are we trying to cure diseases? Well, I, I certainly one of the big selling points of the advocates of what was called personalized medicine, now it's often called precision medicine. In the book, I, I try to essentially show that really what we're talking about is sort of molecular genetic medicine. Um, but if you set that kind of terminological point aside, the advocates will certainly say one of the benefits of this approach is that it gets at causes instead of symptoms. And so that's the real contrast that's set up as, as what is supposed to um, um, make it an improvement over what they would call traditional one-size-fits-all medicine. Um, I, what I would say is I think you can look at a, a couple of cases where something that you could if not call a pure cure, call something that sort of looks about as close to a cure as you're going to get, you know, yeah. if you sort of believe in science and cause and effect, um, uh, that is real. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment. I think sort of where I come in is after that saying, um, these are the exceptions, not the norms, and they don't typically generalize in part because of what we've learned about biology in the last several decades. So let me give one example. It's another example that I discuss, um, which is the, the use of Gleevec to treat chronic myelogenous leukemia. Yeah. Um, chronic myelogenous leukemia, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, a blood cancer um, prior to about 2001. Um, uh, if you were diagnosed with this, uh, you know, survival was uh, bleak. Uh, most people did not live five years. Um, the treatments for it were either a bone marrow transplant or um, interferon therapy, which is just absolutely awful. Um, and so if, you know, sort of uh, those didn't work for you or you tried them and, and um, uh, the cancer went away for a little bit, but then it comes back basically um, white blood cells start over proliferating in your body. They so this is like a, like a blood cancer, blood cancer. It's right? a blood cancer. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so it just, the blood, the white blood cells are what get out of control. They, you know, sort of clog the system, clog the spleen. Eventually the body shuts down. Um, but 
uh, Gleevec was approved by the FDA um, after some just sort of brilliant research prior to that. Um, that's led no, by no, Novartis? That's, a Novartis that's right. Drug? It's a Novartis <laughs> drug. Correct. Um, uh, the the sort of the, the scientist who's famously associated with it is Brian Drucker at uh, Oregon Health and Science. Um, and what they found with this uh, drug called uh, uh, Gleevec, although, you know, when it there was being tested, it was called STI-571. And what they discovered was it was able to essentially, you know, kind of go in. It's one of the early tyrosine kinase inhibitors. It goes in and sort of turns off this uh, enzyme cascade that starts this white blood cell proliferation and process. Um, and people with, with, with chronic myelogenous leukemia today can live for decades. Um, you know, it's essentially become, you know, they talk about it being more like a, a chronic illness, like diabetes, you know, and so, and oh, sort wow. of what you're doing is managing, you know, symptoms. Not everybody can take Gleevec and sometimes, you know, it is a cancer. So for some patients, they'll be on it for a while, but then it, you know, it um, uh, uh, becomes resistant to that. But there are other drugs. And, and I think it's safe to say that, you know, patients with, with CML today can look to an optimistic future in the way that um, patients 20, 25 years ago just simply couldn't imagine. Um, so that I think, you know, it, it, and it's important to say that drug was approved by the FDA right as the Human Genome Project was wrapping up. And because of that, as the Human Genome Project was wrapping up, the real advocates of personalized medicine were saying, look, that's what we're talking about, right? You pick your disease, we're going to have a Gleevec for it. Um, yeah. Because what we're going to now get with this genetic information is understanding about what's the cause of diabetes, heart disease, stroke, right? Um, uh, asthma, autism, you name it. And then just like Gleevec sort of, you know, it was designed to turn off that process, we're going to find a Gleevec for each of these other diseases. Um, and but I'll, it's it, still, uh, sorry, Jim. So, but Gleevec still appears to be sort of the, um, you know, the big pharma billion dollar you know, anybody with blood cancer take the drug type mm. product, right? So why do you think that's in the personalized medicine channel? You mean, why is that one called personalized medicine as opposed yeah. to something else? Yeah. Well, so it's, there's an interesting story about kind of how this term personalized medicine came along yeah, yeah. and then why it eventually fell out of fashion and was replaced with something else. Let me just finish the last thought I was saying, which was... Yeah. The more we learned about the Human Genome Project in the subsequent decades, it turns out, you know, all those other things that are, are taking the biggest toll on society, whether it's diabetes or heart disease or infant mortality or maternal, you know, mortality, there's no gene that a drug can kind of, you know, flip off like a light switch. Um, so how do we get the term personalized medicine? And because you're absolutely right there's a way in which everybody with CML now gets some version of this. So why is it being called personalized medicine? So um, I tell the story of this in the book, uh, um, you know, in the late 1990s, there were a number of uh, largely people operating in the world of medical genetics and in a subspecialty of medical genetics called pharmacogenomics. So basically yeah. they're interested in, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, using genetic information to predict drug response, using genetic information in particular to avoid um, adverse drug reactions, right? You're trying to kind of um, bring the tools of genetics into the pharmaceutical industry 
to make it more likely that you're going to be able to find new drug targets and, and, and get through approval better because you're going to be able to weed out the people that risk having a bad reaction in the trials. And then in turn, it's going to help be helpful when it comes time to prescribe drugs because you're going to be able to say like, oh, you know, this is good for this person with this profile and that person with this profile. Um, before, we go, before we go into details, yeah. Jim, could you talk a little bit about, you know, what is the human genome? What, you know, how did we get to sort of mapping the whole thing and, you know, and all of that? So what, what yeah. is the history there? Well, the Human Genome Project, you know, it was first envisioned in the 80s, and it kind of unfolds as a joint effort between the National Institutes of Health in the United States, as well as the Department of Energy. But then it becomes this international effort spread out across the world in the, U, uh, the UK, um, uh, China, Japan, France, you know, many nations contributed to that. Um, you know, when it was initially conceived, it was, I would say, largely a kind of biological exercise. People were interested in the thought of, you know, if we could sort of sequence a human genome, we could do things like comparative genomics and see how, you know, humans compared to flies and, and you know, C. elegans. Um, when Francis Collins comes to the uh, to the National Institutes of Health to take over the the Human Genome Project in the 90s, he's the one who kind of steps in and isn't just interested in the um, sort of theoretical and, and basic science applications. He's a clinician. He's a physician. He has an MD and he wants to help patients. And so you really see when he arrives, the narrative and the kind of marketing of it to the public and Congress to pay for the thing shifts to the medical implications, the, the, the extent to which this is going to be, you know, sort of opening the door to the genomic era in medicine. And so right when Collins is sort of doing that within the federal government, you also have an in industry and in academic medicine, these pharmacogeneticists who are trying to make the case for why their science is going to be useful. Um, and uh, uh, one of them, a, a man who is based, still based in Connecticut named Gualberto Riano is at Yale, um, was creating a company called Genesance and, and wanted to sort of get investors and knew it was basically a pharmacogenomics company. He thought it should be sort of the slogan should be pioneering pharmacogenomics, but didn't think that anybody outside of, you know, sort of Yale medicine is going to know what that means. <laughs> and so he's the one who decides to say, oh, what we do is we're pioneering personalized medicine where the idea was, right, we're going to sort of get genetic information from patients. And that's going to be the thing that personalizes medicine. And what you can see if you look at like a, you know, a kind of um, citation chart from in the 90s to the present is this concept just immediately takes off, you know, oh, yeah. very quickly. Journals of personalized medicine are created. Programs in personalized medicine are created. Um, conferences, books about personalized medicine. And, and really what it is, is it's, it's, oh, it's a kind of generally a term for genetic medicine. And nine times out of 10, it's pharmacogenetics. Um, yeah. By, I'll sort of put the last um, sentence on this story, and then you can tell me if you want me to keep going. But by the mid 2000s, about a decade after Riano introduces that term, the genetics community starts to worry exactly the way you were worrying before, which was this really isn't personalizing in any traditional sense of the term, right? I mean, best case scenario, you might have a situation where, you know, sort of uh, people who are at risk of stroke are put on one of two different blood thinners, but right, or, or or people with diabetes are given maybe one of three different drugs, but that's not 
personal. That's that's sort of population stratification. And and so there's this hand ring that happens from about 2007 to 2011, where the genetics community likes all the momentum that's behind personalized medicine, but is worried about the term. And what ends up happening is it's it sort of a new term is introduced to try to capture the good, but leave behind the bad, and that's precision medicine. <laughs> and so if you look in the sort of conceptual space that we live in today, what you have are people talking about, sometimes they'll use the term precision medicine, sometimes they'll use the term personalized medicine. If you ask 20 different medical geneticists, what's the relationship between personalized medicine and precision medicine, you'll probably get 20 different answers. Um, <laughs> really, it all just traces back to, it's, it's typically pharmacogenomics. Yeah, yeah. So this is the basic idea here, if I understand this correctly, Jim, is that you have some sort of a hardware in, in your system, which is the gene. Yeah. And we can map it, we can look into it, and we can say, given past data, we can assign a probability something is going to happen on that on that particular mutation or whatever, right? So I mean, it is a very elegant idea. I mean, a lot of people bought into this in the 90s, I would imagine, right? I mean, it's, it, it makes perfect rational sense. Yes, I think that was the idea, you know, that what we would find for, again, I'm just, I, I keep gravitating to these very common complex diseases because they're the ones that take the biggest health toll. And they're the ones that I think the geneticists thought they were going to get the most purchase on. So if you think of something like diabetes or, or cardiovascular disease, the thought was, you know, if you go back to, you know, as the human genome project's wrapping up, you know, there's probably not one gene for these things or risk for these things, but maybe there's a handful of genes. And 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 once we look for them and find them, we can see, you know, um, Jim has, you know, um, four of the five risky variants associated with diabetes. Gil only has one of the five. I'm at higher risk of diabetes than you are. And that's going to be the kind of thing that we can apply to anybody, right? And, and as a result, you know, the sort of fundamental care of diabetes is going to change because we can identify the risky population and, and give them what they need that's different from the people that aren't at risk. What happened was, though, you know, when they started looking for these genes, um, they didn't find four or five. They found, you know, dozens, hundreds, in some cases, <laughs> thousands of regions across the genome that yeah. were associated with these traits. Um, each location, which, you know, just makes a kind of very small fractional contribution to the risk of having it. Yeah. And so the ability, A, to kind of then make reliable predictions with that information, and B, even if you can, to sort of have some sort of molecular hook that you can intervene on, right, that you can kind of hang a, a, an intervention on, um, becomes severely compromised. And, and so that's the kind of world that we're living in now. Um, there are exceptions, you know, what I would say where the molecular geneticists have gotten some purchases. What we found is maybe if we're thinking about a whole population of people with diabetes, maybe there are like some rare forms of diabetes that are the result of one particular gene um, yeah. going astray. And um, uh, it could be that we weren't even sort of aware that those people with diabetes were different from all the rest of the people with diabetes. And the thought is like, okay, now that we know about this one particular form of diabetes with that rare variant that's responsible for it, we can give them their own particular drug. Um, that possible. I think to the extent that they might get any sort of biological um, traction, it might happen there. 
the 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 compromise though is and this is what happens across the world of, of medical genetics the sort of more you get the biological traction you get smaller and smaller patient populations and because you get smaller and smaller patient populations the cost of those things both developing and then selling them go through the roof and so what you find is where these things have been found and drugs for them have been developed personalized and precision medicine treatments can be you know, um, tens of thousands of dollars of years, hundreds of thousands of dollars, in some cases, millions of dollars, because the companies that are developing them, right, are interested in profit, and they need to get that back from very small patient populations. Right, right. Yeah, so, so I was thinking, Jim, that so it's a combinatorial engineering problem that uh, it would have been so nice if you could find one site on the gene that is controlling something. But unfortunately, we find hundreds of hundreds of things on it. So it's a combinatorial problem in the sense that we can we cannot really predict what's going to happen, even if you have all the data. Mm. So this is a bit of a tangent. So I want to get your perspective on this. So you know we are moving ahead on artificial intelligence in, in many areas. We have quantum computing sort of coming in. So we can do a lot of things very, very fast, and we can do some mathematics around it. Do, do you think this would, uh, even if it's a combinatorial explosion on the gene, do you think we'll get to a point that we can actually assign a, prob a, a reasonable probability something is going to happen? That is absolutely the direction that it is going. And I would say, you know, genomics has been at the leading edge of big data and all the computational tools that go with it for the last 30 or 40 years. And, and that yep. continues to be the case. Um, you know, I'm at the University of Utah, where there is a long and, and prestigious history of, of human medical genetics here. And it continues to this day. And those, you know, uh, people work very, very closely with the computational biologists, the information scientists, AI, machine learning. It is all a part of what they're doing. And I think what we should, you know, the way it is marketed to the general public is sort of like, look at how fascinating this technological frontier is yeah. in which we found ourselves. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the reality is it's, it's, it's a, it's a, they're revealing, oh, this is far more complicated than we initially thought. And, and sure. as a result, it's, um, you know, the kind of, we're, we're forced to bring in all these tools because it's not as simple as saying like, oh, you've got the gene for, for heart disease. Um, that is what's happening. What the, uh, an example of what you can then um, see it in, in, in action is, you know, when they when they first set out doing these very large genomic studies to find the genes where they thought they would find that handful of really risky ones, and instead found all these you know places spread out all over the human genome. The initial reaction was sort of this sense of despair. It was like, oh my yeah. God, what <laughs> what do we do? Um, but then the realization was like, well, maybe if we just like smash all the sort of infinitesimal riskinesses together, we can spit out one score. And, and, and what you'll hear now medical geneticists talk about are polygenic risk scores or polygenic indices. Yeah. And that is this sort of smashing together of all the risk so that you can um, sort of have that risk factor that you know from the population where it was initially studied. And then if somebody new comes along like you, Gil, you can give them your DNA and they'll say like, oh, you know, based on all those variants that we looked at in, in your genome, you're here. What's been interesting to learn though is the 
accuracy of, of, of those scores, that is the extent to which you can sort of bring somebody new in who wasn't in the study and yeah. then see whether or not the polygenic risk score that that population that was studied captures the experience of an actual individual is highly dependent on um, uh, the ancestral history of the research cohort. And so what you've got now is the situation where historically medical geneticists have done the vast majority of their research on uh, participants of European ancestry. Yeah. It, it turns out then people with European ancestry uh, are are more likely to get reliable polygenic risk scores from these data sets than people that don't have that that European ancestry. And even the people with the European ancestry, I think this is the other thing that we need to keep our mind on, right? The, the promise of the Human Genome Project wasn't just that you're gonna sort of like tell people who's doomed to have diabetes, you know, so that they can kind of dwell on it until it happens. It was we're going to have the Gleevec for diabetes, right? Oh, yeah. And right. and and what all this machine learning and AI and everything else being thrown out of sort of has implicitly revealed is that is going to be far more difficult, if not impossible, because there just isn't right when you're talking about thousands of different regions in the genome, you can't flip them all off, you know, at the same time. Um, right. In many cases, the, the genes that are implicated are implicated in all sorts of other traits. So you might try to do that and say like, oh, we'll turn your kind of like risk of, we'll use gene editing to turn your risk of, of, of diabetes down, but you might turn up the risk of, you know, blood cancer or some other thing that you weren't anticipating because of how this complex system works. Yeah, yeah. So sort of the treating the system like a mechanical device with a few knobs mm. to optimize it uh, seems to have not worked. Um, I'm fond of saying, uh, Jim, that uh, I'm an agnostic, but if God exists, she has a great sense of humor. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, you know, she leads people to thinking that they've figured everything out and then pulls the rug out of their, <laughs> out of their feet uh, because it's a very, very complex system. Nature mm -hmm. had million years to sort of fine tune this. And it is not a linear system. It's a highly non-linear combinatorial system. And so any mathematics that we have invented, um, I suspect it's not sufficiently robust to, to really do this, right? I mean, what, what is your sense of this? Yeah, and I think, you know, the the other part of that is <clears throat> this is all just when we're only thinking about the genome, right? But go back to what we started about at the top of the hour. When you're interested in something like why is infant mortality and maternal mortality so out of whack in the United States compared to other developed yeah. countries? Yeah. Why in particular is it communities of color in the United States that have these just shockingly high rates of infant mortality and, and, and maternal mortality? It's not because in the United States, our human, our genomes are just different from Iceland or Japan, right? It's it, and it's not because in the United States, people of color have just you know the gene for or the genes for infant mortality, and and white people don't have them. These are products of our our physical and social environments that we live in, right? It's about it's about what you know, the, the environment that we all move through and that different communities move through in the United States. And so that's, you know, another way in which, you know, just kind of adding more AI and machine learning at the genome isn't going, isn't going to solve that problem. And that's kind of, I would say, really the big picture story of the book. It's that we've tried this going all in on the human genome for decades now. We can see what lies ahead if we stand on that, go continue down that path. Yeah. Um, 
it's not one where costs come down and equity goes up. It's the opposite. But there's this other path where we actually have good reason to think that we could get increasing equity and, and costs go down. But it's not focused on the genome. It's about making our environment safer. Yeah, so environmental factors are a big part of this thing as well. So I, I remember uh, an insurance company in New York, Jim, I don't know if you've seen the study. This is a few years ago. Um, the AI basically said African-Americans don't need that much care. Mm. Um, it, it was basically using historical data. And it's basically this was saying, Optum. I think it was a, it was a, a program yeah. called Optum. Yeah. yeah so yeah, it had all exactly. this algorithmic bias built into <laughs> yeah. them. I actually, when I teach algorithmic bias, I use this yeah. example because of, of what it illustrates. Yeah. I, I, I hijacked that story though. You, you finished telling it. No, no, no. So and yeah. basically, I mean, it's the same thing, which is, if you use historical data, you're basically reflecting what happened in the past, and that's not true, right? Yeah. I mean, that's not necessarily true from an intelligence perspective. So I have a nagging worry of artificial intelligence, um, mm. which is history is not a good <laughs> raw material set that's right. to make, make future decisions, I would yes. say. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny how, you know, I oftentimes think of this as an educator, as somebody who has students sitting in front of me, you know, looking for resources to do research papers or work on projects in class. And, you know, in the academic world for the last year, there's been a lot of anxiety about chat GPT and sort of <laughs> this feeling that, you know, um, uh, um, right, students can just sort of pose any can get any answer they want from this thing that is going to make the kind of exercise of doing research go away. Um, and what you quickly learned, right, is because of what you were just saying, in many ways, it functions no differently than a Wikipedia page, right? If you, if you just ask it something like, tell me about Aristotle or tell me about DNA, yeah. it's pretty good at like, you know, sort of trolling the internet and getting that the kind of the basic uh, uh, text that will provide an answer to that. Um, but if you ask it other questions, sort of more nuanced things or questions that require, um, you know, awareness of more recent phenomena, right? That's where the problem that you were just talking about, the fact that it's sort of it, it's 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 data set is history um, reveals itself to be so problematic. Um, so, you know, the way I worked around this is when I have students do exercises for me, I'll actually sort of tell them. One path is to go and have ChatGPT solve this for you. And then we'll all come yeah. back and, and sort of talk about what you found. And in some cases, it, it comes up with some interesting stuff, or maybe it'll point you in new directions. In other cases, you just think, oh, my, where did this come from? And it's completely out of left field. And that, I think, sort of, you know, it helps them see what are the limitations of this thing that is just becoming so prevalent in our society. Yeah, I haven't thought about this, Jim. So that's interesting. So suppose you have 40 students in your classroom. And all of them go out and you know do some sort of chat chat GPT thing, mm -hmm. and they come back with ideas. That compendium of ideas could be interesting mm -hmm. um, because you know so on Bing you know on all the all the yeah. uh, browsers now you can turn it to creative you know so yeah. it comes up with uh, you know, stuff that right. most likely doesn't make any sense. But then sometimes it does interesting things. Yes. So if a lot of people are coming up with different ideas onto the table, that could ultimately create some creative 
creative thinking. I haven't thought Absolutely. about it since. Yeah. yeah. And you might find if, you know, if you sort of put them all onto one particular problem, but they query it differently, which leads yeah. to different outcomes, then you might be able to look at like, oh, interesting, you know, um, uh, this person sort of posed it this way this person posed it this way, look at the differences that came back in light of these, you know, sort of subtle terminological differences that they opted for. And, but now what you're doing is right, is you're not sort of seeing it as right. The kind of crystal ball that kind of tells us what's real in the world. Instead, you're seeing it as just this other tool that's out there and there's ways that you can kind of tinker with it to get information. Yeah. So, so we have this metric quality adjusted lifespan. So I'm mm -hmm. going back to going back to your, your, your thoughts on the book. Um, and you could have a, a larger metric, which is sort of a utility adjusted um, lifespan. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if I'm a professor at a university at some point, if I cannot really write I'm just making this up, Jim. I haven't thought through mm -hmm. it. Uh, if I cannot write research papers or something, I find it not that interesting anymore. So there's sort of a utility adjusted lifespan. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, uh, you know, how that metric is trending. Um, so, I mean, we, we have multiple problems here. There is a sort of a retirement horizon issue. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some politicians are trying to extend that. Uh, mm -hmm. from, you know, 60 to 70 sure. or whatever. Um, so it all sort of goes into policy questions, which is ultimately the question is, how do you maximize the utility of society? Mm -hmm. And it's not as simple as, you know, because Medicare and Medicaid is running out of money, let's just extend, <laughs> extend the retirement age to 70. It doesn't work like that, right? I mean, what, what mm -hmm. is your sense of this? I, I'm, I'm now far... Left from your That's OK. I mean, I think it's it's a fascinating topic, yeah. so I'm happy to chat with you about it, Gil. Um, a couple things come to mind. One is you're absolutely right. It's it's it becomes the, the health economists who work in this space um, have to make all sorts of assumptions to get these models up and running. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, I think there are some high level um, inferences you can make from that from that information, particularly, and this again goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, when you're looking at sort of different approaches to structuring society, which leads to all sorts of different outcomes, right? So you might think, oh, if, if we just spent more money on healthcare, that's gonna solve these problems. Well, when you compare the United States and how much it invests in healthcare versus these other nations, it's clear that investing more is not, is not solving yeah. this problem. And so, that's a kind of that that disconfirms that hypothesis. But then when you look at these other countries and you find all the investment in, you know, sort of social services, um, uh, 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 child support, right, the ability to take off uh, uh, paid leave when you have a child to be able to spend time with your children to make sure that kids have access to, you know, uh, nutritious diets and education early on. These are the things where you do see, look, the countries that even if they're not spending a fraction of worse spending on healthcare, get these much better health outcomes. That suggests it is something about sort of it's it's the way society structures itself and the way it sort of yeah. scaffolds society to provide resources for people to thrive. Um, 
So I think that's one thing you can say. The other thing is, it's also just sort of, you know, this is now kind of like the philosopher in me um, thinking about this. There's lots of um, concern from the disability community about these measures, because oftentimes what they do is discount the value of disabled lives um, and, and, you know, and act as if, you know, disability is always bad. And the goal is to sort of have a, a kind of disability free world. Um, and I think that's really helpful to have that in the back of your head when you're wading through this. You know, I think it's certainly the case that we want to see less infant mortality, less maternal mortality. But that's not the same as, you know, saying that we want to see fewer people in wheelchairs or fewer people um, who are deaf. You know, there's lots of people that live really flourishing lives with those disabilities. Um, and the, the quality adjusted life year approach can sometimes um, make it numerically appear as if those lives are, are less valuable than, than those without those disabilities. Yeah, so, so you talk a lot about sort of environmental factors, and we came up with a fancy term epigenetics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I don't know if it, it you know, takes um, that much importance. Uh, but there's environment and there's society, as you say. So mm -hmm. how the society is organized has an impact on healthcare. So I'm a big fan of you know countries like New Zealand, Denmark, mm -hmm. uh, and Scandinavia in general where we find uh, these, I mean, we find higher lifespans, higher quality adjusted lifespans, mm -hmm. lower disease incidence of, you know, major diseases that we mm -hmm. see in the US. So there's a societal question here, which is how do you organize to reduce healthcare spending? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is, it is, the status quo appears to be, in the US at least, the status quo appears to be pretty bad. In my it opinion. is. Yes, it is bad. And I think what makes it such a challenge to do anything about it is um, there is in the United States simultaneously this widespread kind of sense of American exceptionalism, right? The sense of like, we're the best in the world, damn it. Um, and so, you know, the, the thought that our system is is fundamentally broken i think people get sort of glimpses of it right when they sort of get these just astronomical medical bills or people go into yeah. bankruptcy when they when they're encountering this or you know they, they, they're watching something like um you know a chronic illness devastate generations of their family um there's this sense of something's wrong um i think that the 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 challenge in the united states is half of the political spectrum has got it in their heads that government is the source of that problem that right somehow like government is is um in sort of imposing its will on people and if we could just sort of get government out of the way everything would flourish and, and these health problems would go away when in fact what the lessons of these other countries are is you know um government involvement in just basic social welfare programs do have, um, you know, tremendous impact on, on, on the kind of health outcomes that people care most about. But, um, you know, just think about all the controversy surrounding the passage of Obamacare, right? I mean, that wasn't yeah. a universal healthcare program. We didn't do something like Canada did or, or the UK did. All we did was sort of try to in create the infrastructure within our existing system that is this mishmash of all sorts of different ways of, of, of 
reimbursing healthcare and adding an element that lets you sort of capture more people that aren't getting captured before. And there was absolute outcry about it. Right? And there's still efforts to to make this thing go away. So, yeah. you know, I think the, 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 there's the, the, the problem in the United States is both the kind of political will and the extent to which a vast portion of the populace has internalized this message that, um, you know, sort of government involvement is is just is the devil is 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 really bad, and and you got to do everything you can to keep it out of your life. Yeah, so so I don't know how you think about this, Jim. So maybe twenty years ago we thought world population is going to peak at ten billion mm. by twenty one hundred, and then drop off. Right now the projections are that the world population peak at eight point five billion. Mm in like 25 years mm -hmm. and then drop off. And there is sufficient uh, data that, that shows that might be more true. Mm. So we are heading toward a regime where humans are the most valuable thing <laughs> that, that you want to keep. Mm. Um, and, you know, any healthcare regime that says, you know, um, that undervalues human um, is, is going to fail. Mm. In, in, you know, in many ways. So there's a there's a more broad fundamental question, which is just keep every human, <laughs> uh, you know, active and and working. It's yeah. so, sort of the objective function that you want to maximize. I think. Yeah, and I think if you put that that story that you just told in the data about it in the kind of wider context, I think it's an interesting. Um, uh, um, story more generally about sort of how scientific ideas and, and fears of existential threats change over time. You know, in the 60s and 70s, there was this fear of a population bomb that, you know, sort of <laughs> what was going to do in the world was there just wouldn't be enough kind of space for us all to stand on. Um, I think it's, it's still certainly the case that, you know, there are all sorts of um, limited resources that even 8.5 billion people are going to, you know, kind of struggle to distribute in any sort of fair manner. You know, out here in Utah, water is the is the thing. We live in a desert state. Um, uh, most people sort of wear blinders and tell themselves that's not the case, um, and, and, <laughs> and use water accordingly. But you know, the the Salt Lake is drying up. Um, uh, uh, it's it's a real problem out here, and. Um, you know, whether it's 10 billion or 8.5 billion, that's going to be a problem out here. And so I think you're right. The kind of the, the, the conversation has shifted from the kind of gross number of people that are going to be able to occupy this thing that we call Earth and more to, I think, more kind of local, you know, phenomena, you know, whether it's sort of you know, can the rising sea levels around New Orleans, you know, be mitigated in such a way that the people that who are there can survive or um, in the in the very arid West, can people, you know, kind of continue to flood into this region um, uh, when there just isn't enough water to, to go around? Um, and so it, I think that it's it's moving toward these, you know, very specific things like oil and water. Yeah. fresh air, um, uh, as opposed to just sort of that that one overarching number that is supposed to be kind of like the ticking time bomb. Yeah, so this is a localized uh, sort of a displacement question. So mm. I grew up in South India, and mm. I was looking at a chart. If all the ice melted, mm. um, what would India look like? Mm -hmm. It's frightening. 
<laughs> so you guys in Utah, I think you would be in uh, good shape, you know. <laughs> we you finally get... have uh, beachfront property. <laughs> <laughs> you finally get the beachfront <laughs> property that you always been looking for. That's right. So, so th there is a differential effect all around the world. Right. Some countries are going to be completely wiped out. Um, and, and, you know, what are these people are going to do is, is uh, so there's so many policy questions here, you know, in, in addition to the the healthcare questions that we were, I mean, these are also related to healthcare in the sense that, so, you know, I saw some, I studied that said bacteria out of, um, out of, um, you know, the Arctic melting can create all whole sort of diseases we're not even aware of. Um, right. So, I mean, I don't know where we are heading toward, but yeah, it's. I don't want to scare people. But there's a lot of yeah. No, I think it, yeah. it's a little yeah. bit of 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 right. I think in this particular context is good. You don't want it to be paralyzing, but you do want it to be, you know, sort of motivating. And and that's right. You know, we're kind of there's a way in which this directly um, relates to the the book. You, you know, the um, most of our conversation earlier was about sort of the promise of this medical genetic revolution in healthcare. But the other side of it, which we've touched on, is folks who have been looking for a kind of public health environmental revolution in healthcare. And for many people, that sort of traces back to the figure of Rachel Carson. Um, you know, she is sort of the, the the person that's associated with the American environmental movement. And I think when most people think of her, she they think of, you know, the kind of alarm that she sounded about things like DDT and the risks that it posed to, you know, um, uh, trout and, and bald eagle chicks. Yeah. But she also warned that all these chemicals that we're sort of putting into society, they're not just in the bald eagle chicks and the trout, they're in in babies and they're in breast milk and you know basically the, you know we are we're not separate from this environment but as well and and um you know so for those who are sort of really focused on public health and environmental health basically the, the the point is even though we don't have leaded gasoline and ddt sprayed all over all over the place anymore we still live in an environment that is constantly yeah. being barraged with new dangers. Um, and so what you were talking about there with, you know, the kind of th this what's happening, I think it's important to be to remember that Utah is a nice example of that, you know, the is drying up um, on the one hand that um, uh, uh, is it environmental sort of catastrophe, right? There's a whole ecosystem, there's a whole wildlife ecology that surrounds it. It's 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 one of the things that the state has its identity wrapped up in. And so there's this way in which you sort of think of it, it's that, that, that thing over there, and it would be really bad if it dried up. But it also poses a, a real, you know, proximate health risk. There is arsenic in that lake. And as it dries up, the arsenic what was submerged underwater is now in dust on top of that uh, dry lake bed. And when the winds blow across it, we're getting those toxic heavy metals blown into Salt Lake City, right? I mean, a, 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 a major metropolis. And so that's just one local example. These kind of things play out all over the place that, you know, the, the, the extent to which our environment is, um, is healthy is, is an indicator of how Sort of healthy that ecosystem it is, but it's also an indicator of you know whether or not we're able to to be a part of it in a, in a way that is safe for for humans. Yeah, excellent, Jim. Um, thanks so much uh, for spending time with me. Gail, it was my pleasure. I appreciated the conversation. Thank you.